Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hey, everybody. David Fortney. Great to be with everyone again on the podcast, DC Insider, What Employers Need to Know. And I've got Bert and Nita with me. Hey, Bert, how you doing today? Fine. I just don't want to work uh, labor on Labor Day, but I'm glad to be here. Well, I think we all suffered from that a bit. Nita, what's going on with you? I'm actually happy to be back at work. I had my grandkids over and I'm so tired. I'm ready to be working at at my desk. Well, I'm glad we all labored on Labor Day. Well, we're coming off the Labor Day weekend and we really wanted to take this opportunity to just pause for a moment and to think about Labor Day. Labor Day, which is designed to celebrate the American worker. And within our wheelhouse, what we began to really think about as part of our Labor Day thought process was, are these 20th century employment laws really effective for the 21st century worker? As we sit here 20 years into the 21st century, this is an issue that is playing out in real time and I think helps explain so many of the changes and so many of the political and policy debates that we are covering. So what we want to do is really try to unpack that question, the 20th century laws and how they are applied and whether they're effective and what the changes are to govern the 21st century worker. And I want to jump right into it. I mean, some of the changes are simply in how work is performed, the technology, internet, outsourcing, artificial intelligence, globalization, all of that has had significant impacts on the workforce itself. David, let me jump in right there, because I think perhaps the major change in the makeup of the workforce is the explosion of independent contractors and so-called gig workers, you know, the Uber, the Grubhub, the TaskRabbit. This is a large, growing, contingent workforce without fixed salary, without fixed schedules, and really without real work opportunities. These are jobs and not careers. And I think this is the most obvious impact of technology. Technology enables gig work. It enables remote work, both of which diminish the traditional role of the workplace. They fragmentize work. They compartmentalize workers. And they put people outside the protections of the whole panoply of federal labor employment laws. I think the other thing to keep in mind is the fact that the COVID pandemic has completely changed a lot of the way people do work. And I think it's accelerated the move into gig work and independent work, as well as people deciding they want to work from home or they want to work in, you know, Timbuktu. And all of that, I believe, all these changes both in the workplace and how people work requires changes in the federal employment laws that protect these workers, because the laws were set up for a very different world, which I think, David, we want to talk about next. Right. So let's just spend a moment and talk about, because to understand where we are today, 20 years into the 21st century, we have to go back to the prior century, the 20th century, because those are the laws largely that we're still dealing with. 
And of course, the 20th century employment laws were enacted in two critical periods, the New Deal and the Great Society. So let's briefly remind people of what occurred during those changes. Generally, during the 20th century, the federal employment laws offered significant protections to certain employees of covered private employers. And these were embodied, for example, what we call the National Labor Relations Act, Fair Labor Standards Act, Title VII, and other civil rights laws. But these laws didn't really cover everyone, though. No, not at all, David. Let me jump in on perhaps the largest and most important, which is the National Labor Relations Act passed in 1935, last amended in 1948. But it was not inclusive. In a sense, you might want to say, in retrospect, they started on the wrong foot. Agricultural workers, domestic workers, home health workers were all excluded. Independent contractors were not considered employees. And none of those people in this growing sector of American workforce have the protections of the federal laws. They can't form unions, and they're kind of on the outside looking in, and that's still been true. And that problem is the one that's confronting Congress and employers today. Indeed, Bert, because those laws, those 20th century laws that you've described, really were designed for the workforce as it existed then which was principally, you go back, it was a workforce largely made up of hourly manufacturing employees working at a traditional bricks and mortar location. And they were involved in manufacturing, mining, construction workers, fairly stable national economy, and fairly stable workforce relationships with the employer, which meant that the laws were designed to capture that type of workforce materially different than what we have today. Yeah, I think that is exemplified in the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, passed in 1935 and is still the basic law, mainly defining the relationship between employers and unions, not individuals, but workers in mass, and it defines the right to unionize. It also defines what is an employee and what's an employer still existing today, but it did create in 1948 both unfair labor practices against management and against unions. It enabled the growth of unions, the explosive growth of unions in the post-war period in, in the United States, but it hasn't changed since. It is enforced by the NLRB, a, the first of the super agencies, also created back in the 30s, and the NLRB has turned out to be probably the most highly politicized agency in Washington. and. The battles of control of the NLRB continue to this very day, and we'll talking about them as we see the evolution of the law in the modern world. Of course, following on the heels after the National Labor Relations Act was enacted, Congress turned its sights on to addressing wage and hour protection, the concept of a minimum wage, the concept of overtime being paid, and the concept that certain employees, so-called uh, exempt employees, could exist and could be paid on a salary basis and would not receive overtime. These are all pretty well-accepted concepts today, but at the time were fairly radical in concept and viewed as potentially overreaching. But indeed, the amendments to those longstanding wage hour laws have been few and far between. There was an amendment to the original FLSA from 1938. It was in 1949 for the Portal Act, uh, which actually cut back a little bit on the coverage of the act and also some other modest changes. But even the minimum wage, which today, the federal minimum wage is $7.25, that's been unchanged since 2009. So this wage hour law 
that was structured again for that traditional mid 20th century workforce model has largely remained unchanged. And that's one of the struggles that we see. Well, after that kind of new deal change, then we had the next major change of a whole new spate of laws. And that, of course, was through the Great Society. Nita, can you walk us through that a little bit? Absolutely. And this is a whole different set of laws. The prior laws really were focused on basic laws within the workplace. This expanded those laws to add protections for women, people of color, individuals with disabilities, and so forth, which were unheard of in the 30s and 40s. This is all in starting in the 60s, uh, going up through 2009 and the ACA in 2010. But they're still 20th century concepts. They're just an expansion of adding protections for new workers coming into the workplace. And finally, FMLA, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, which was added to provide unpaid leave for workers. But all of these, like the other laws, are based, David and Bert, on the idea of who's an employee. And I think that's our biggest issue right now is who's an employee and who's an employer. And so what is the Biden administration thinking about doing about this, David, and how are we going to move forward? Well, and this is what really, if you will, calls the question that we want to discuss today, which is how are these 20th century laws being applied to the 21st century worker and workplace? The Biden administration is taking several approaches to try to answer that question. Clearly, the basic answer is they're not satisfied with how the 20th century laws are applying to protect and govern the 21st century workplace. And so the administration has championed basically two approaches, two lanes, if you will, for uh, responding. One is to take those 20th century laws and try to reinterpret, to extend them in ways that perhaps beyond what they originally were intended. And that's a great source of debate and potential conflict and ultimately litigation. But there's also an effort to recast, to reimagine what protections and how the federal government might work in providing benefits, what the role should be, and should we continue to use the employer-employee model, or should we move to a different model to afford protections to workers? And as that new vision gets debated, we're seeing both of those debates occurring right now, today, in Washington. So let's talk a little bit about some of the examples of the reinterpretation of those 20th century laws. Yeah, David, let me start that off. Uh, The most important and the one that's drawn the most attention is the most basic, which is expanding the definition of employee so that we can include independent contractors and gig workers through regulation, through legislation, through NLRB decisions to get them inside the tent of federal protections. It would provide millions of workers with Title VII rights, fair labor standard rights, rights to unionize, right to pensions, And this process has already begun because the Biden administration has proposed regulations with respect to redefining independent contractors and joint employers to get them under the tent. But there is by no means guaranteed that that process is going to succeed. Moving on, the other thing they're trying to do is expand who is an employer because uh, one of the issues that came out of the franchising of America is that big companies 
have basically pushed their responsibilities down to smaller and smaller units. And so what the Biden administration is trying to do is roll, basically roll up a bunch of employers into one unit and cover those employees that would otherwise not be covered. You know, one of the other areas that we see the effort to retool those 20th century laws to meet today was the initial introduction of the PRO Act to reformulate the union organizing rules that Bert uh, addressed earlier that were passed in the mid 20th century, kind of the granddaddy of all of this. But of course, as we've discussed in several podcasts, they don't have the votes to substantively enact the PRO Act. So what we now see is through the reconciliation process, trying to scrape off as many of the changes as possible to load them in, to materially change the balance of power and the processes that are included in collective bargaining, union organizing, and union elections, specifically to introduce the concept of significant monetary penalties, up to $50,000 for violations, and a host of other concepts that were not part of that original mid-20th century, because again, what the administration is trying to do is recast that 20th century labor law to make it more effective, more relevant, and they have no stronger champion than the president himself, who says that, you know, we need strong unions. There's another avenue, and that is through the National Labor Relations Board, which is now for the first time in many years under democratic control, The very activist general counsel has announced that she, too, is seeking to modify the penalties, to modify the procedures, and to try to bring agency decisions, quasi-judicial, and regulations, some of the uh, changes that they may not get in the PRO Act in Congress. To completely change the subject, let's go back to the whole idea of Title VII discrimination and these other laws we were talking about. One of the struggles that the EEOC has had with the New World Order is you need someone to know they've been discriminated against in order to go and file a complaint. With all the new technology, many people don't know they've been discriminated against. So the Biden administration is going to propose, we believe, pay data collection, which EEOC and OFCCP would then review and determine whether they're seeing patterns and then give them the option to go in rather than waiting for complaints. To pick up on that, Nita, that's part of an effort to try to circumvent Congress and to try to do through either executive agencies or through the executive itself to try to change the pattern. And one of the ones that everybody has recognized in the last few months is the using federal contractors to advance social policy, such as the $15 minimum wage that's been imposed by executive order. As most people may not recognize, the federal government has just uh, plenary powers to impose any rules it wants on those who want to do business with the United States, and it can do so by executive order. I think this $15 minimum wage is just the harbinger, the beginning of what this administration is aiming to do through executive order if it fails to achieve its goals through legislation. So we have that block, which is reformulating, pushing probably the outer edges and maybe exceeding those edges of the 20th century laws to try to formulate them to fit the 21st century worker. But the administration has this second lane where they're trying to kind of recast the law 
and the concept of how protections are provided to workers. Nobody keeps saying workers, not employees, workers. And one of the clear examples, and we're seeing that again, this, this budget bill that's starting to wind its way through is where all of this is loaded in. Because recall, we've talked about this, that only requires all Democrats to vote for it, and it can be enacted without a single Republican vote. And in that regard, the changes uh, that are included in that, uh, which are fundamental, this uh, human infrastructure, as it's sometimes called, deal with workers quite extensively. For example, extending and expanding unemployment insurance benefits, which by definition have only been for employees because employers pay for it through a tax. But now, as we did during the pandemic, to continue to provide UI benefits to gig workers and independent contractors, which would be a material change in a permanent expansion, not a COVID pandemic emergency response, but a permanent change. Well, you add to that, David, the idea of a federal, and I mean federally sponsored, federally organized, paid family medical leave for almost all workers. This would be 12 paid weeks, and it would cover people that are not currently covered by our unpaid FMLA. And, you know, along the same line of social policy, uh, the reconciliation bill also includes a significant expansion of post-secondary educational opportunities, mainly community colleges, paid for by the federal government. It's turned out to be more difficult to administer than first imagined because every state has a different law about how it pays for and subsidizes community colleges and trying to level the burden has proved to be a challenge. But the goal is very, very clear. They want to expand educational opportunities as the basis for a better educated workforce for the coming century. And finally, I think one of the most important ideas that has come out of the Biden administration so far is to provide pre-K and kindergarten and child care at a reasonable rate. For as Speaking as a woman who was a working mother, the cost of child care is prohibitive and obviously during the pandemic was unavailable. So the proposal would cap child care costs at 7% of a family income, which is amazing. It would be free for lowest earning people it would increase the pay of child care workers, which would be terrific. And it would have an option to send three and four-year-olds, which would be basically child care, to pre-kindergarten, which is both child care as well as enabling them to be ready for school, which is a constant problem. All of which would be paid for by the federal government, probably through taxes, which is a whole nother problem that they're going to have. Well, they sure are. So this is an ambitious agenda. It's just starting to roll out, but it does show a fundamental shift in how workers should be protected and their worker needs addressed by the federal government. But of course, it's not just the federal government that's being reimagined as we move into the 21st century and pause on this Labor Day, but also the states. And the states have also changed a good bit, haven't they, Nita? They have. And because federal inaction, this has happened in our history. If you go back over time, you'll see where the federal government won't move forward in these areas the states have. And we've seen on our favorite topic of who's an employee, California with AB5 tried to cover the gig workers. Then they passed a proposal that would uncover the gig workers. But AB5 is still out there. Basically, everybody is considered an employee in California almost no matter what they do. 
you have other states where they've expanded protections, pay equity and so forth that have not been passed by Congress. And then privacy acts. That's a whole nother area. What privacy rights do workers have and so forth? But there are other things that are being developed, Bert. The states uh, you know, have often been called the laboratory uh, for innovation in the United States. I mean, the broadest one that we have noticed over the years is each state is now determining what it wants its minimum wage to be so that the federal 725 is no longer the norm. And that's a, probably the most obvious example of state action. But there are things happening kind of below the surface, not at state level, but at a company level. And this has to do with the way workers are organizing themselves to try to influence the terms and conditions of employment and the social policy directions of their employers. And for me, it's the surest sign that the existing laws are not responsive to the needs and wants of the current workforce. I guess the best known is the Google Association. This is a company with very highly compensated, very secure workforce. They have no current wish to form a traditional union, but they are very vocal in trying to shape the terms and conditions of employment and influencing with whom their company does business. There was a recent settlement of a worker who tried to influence Google in not working or not using its, its apparatuses to assist the Customs and Border Patrol. That just got settled by the NLRB. It's the best example I can think of, of how individual workers at individual companies are trying to influence social policy. There are other worker affiliations, some affiliated with unions, again, don't want to be traditional or can't be traditional uh, unions because they're gig workers or they don't think they can organize or they're working remotely, but they're seeking to influence what the status of the worker is, what their wages are. Scheduling is an enormously significant issue. And then finally, we have the social justice uh, organizations, BLM, hashtag Me Too, whose interests are solely in the social justice sphere. But all of these non-traditional worker organizations seeking to impact their lives and the lives and employment are a sign that the, the old traditional union structure does not seem to be serving the interests of the current workforce. You know, as we mark Labor Day in 2021, what becomes apparent to me is much as has occurred in the prior century, there reached a point where work had changed materially, the law lagged a little bit and they struggled, often with society pushing pushing the legal developments. You think about the civil unrest and the result civil rights reform in the 60s that many will recall. You had the same types of unrest with respect to unions and recognition of unions and bargaining in the 20s and 30s that resulted ultimately in the law being changed. Well, likely the sorts of social changes and the change in how work is being done, we can't fully see how it's going to change coming forward, but the changes are coming and they're in place. So I think it's been a really fulsome discussion of where we are on Labor Day in 2021. It's an extremely exciting time. Very exciting. I want to hit just a couple of key takeaways, and mine is more of a historical perspective. Number one, I see that the law lags, that the workforce, and Bert, you were really hitting on this point, the workforce starts to change first, and then the law is constantly trying to catch up. And I think we're seeing that phenomenon on an accelerated basis today. Frankly, David, I think that is the key takeaway. The role of the worker has changed fundamentally. 
is continuing to change in profound and frankly unanticipated ways. Where to work, when to work, even whether to work are all the kinds of issues that Congress and the employers are going to have to deal with in the future. And I think the pandemic just shone a light on these fraying, especially for women, the fraying infrastructure, the social safety net that wasn't there. And I think this requires a response on the federal level to fix this. And this is what I think the Biden administration is trying to do. Well, we will see. And we will, of course, uh, keep everyone fully informed on those developments as they break. Uh, There's going to be a lot of action on the Hill coming up uh, in September and October. We're going to be covering that on our future podcasts along with some special guests. So I want to really thank uh, Nita and Bert. This was a really fascinating discussion. A fascinating topic. We wish everyone a belated Labor Day. Enjoy the fall, and we're looking forward to spending more time in the future with you. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't, please. DC Insider, What Employers Need to Know. And we appreciate you listening to us today. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.